So, hello, I'm Alex Rutkeen, a barrister specialising in mental capacity law, um, and I'm really glad today to be joined in a rather autumnal and rainy shed um, by not one but two guests. It's really, really lovely to have, to have both of you here. So I'm going to do what I normally do, which is get them to introduce themselves. So first we've got Isabel Astrakhan. Isabel, just tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so my name is Isabel Astrakhan. I'm a fellow in the Department of Bioethics at the National Institutes of Health uh, in the U.S. Great Brilliant. to be here. Thank you. Well, welcome, welcome. And then Scott, Scott Kim. Do you want to introduce Hi. yourself? I am Scott Kim. I am a faculty member and a researcher in the same Department of Bioethics at NIH. And the reason um, we got together in the shed is to think about a paper which has recently been published, which you led on, Isabel, sort of thinking about presumptions capacity. And I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put the link up in the um in in the on the webpage associated with this chat. But kind of one opening question, you'll be able to hear, well, not just from your voices, but from the fact um, you've identified your affiliations. You're, you're two Americans and some of the papers sort of talking about the mental capacity out. So just why are two Americans um wading in? on matters relating to the Mental Capacity Act. I mean, Isabel, I don't know if you want to take that one to start with. Yeah, sure. I think, um, well, as we'll get into, I think it's an issue that goes much beyond um, just the Mental Capacity Act. Um, there is a sort of similarly phrased um, presumption of capacity in Singapore, in Ireland, in Australia, in Canada, here in D.C., um, so it comes up in a lot of jurisdictions and is sort of a broader issue about the way we use the presumption of capacity. Um, so for me, that that immediately sparked interest that there might be this widespread concern. So, I mean, just give us the one line or what, I mean, your understanding of what you think the presumption of capacity is, or at least before we start to untangle. Sure, sure. So I am going to I'm going to go back to the MCA after saying that it's not. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, but the way they put it is a person must be assumed to have capacity unless it is established that the person lacks capacity. Um, so right off the jump, you sort of have this um, this implication of an exclusive disjunction, right, where either the person is assumed to have capacity or we've already established that they lack it. Um, and we'll, we'll get into more about why, why that's a problem. Yeah. So, Scott, I don't know whether you want to kind of talk a bit about your well, I know this this has been something which has been on your mind for a while, this presumption business. And I don't know if you want to just give a couple of thoughts of what was what was, as it were, exercising you about it. And then we can get into how we kind of thought it through in the paper. Well, to be fair, Alex, I think that idea was implanted in my mind by no person, no other than Alex Rutkeen, who told me about some of the interpretations by official bodies or courts and some trusts in uh, England have opted to use. Um, so that piqued my interest. I, it was the first time I, re I heard that it's been interpreted in such a way, and I saw the wording of the MCA, which actually, from a logical point of view, why some interpretations seem um, acceptable. And we can get into my interest in this, which is much more meta which is, what is it about the legal culture and interpretation in England and Wales that's different from the U.S. that um, might affect how this uh, definition 
gets in, uh, interpreted in different ways. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, just to flag a couple of the cases where, where people have said things like, um, or there appears to be an understanding that the presumption of capacity is in some way stopping you from assessing the person's capacity. So there's that feeling that what this is telling us is it, it's, we're not allowed to think about the person's capacity. And, and some of the, the House of Lords, when they looked at the Mental Capacity Act, uh, how it was being implemented, sort of highlighted some of the ways in which that might actually be leading to situations where people are, as it were, actively relying on the presumption to avoid taking responsibility. And then, uh, Isabel, whether do you just to sort of pick up in terms of either leading in, leading on from that or sort of leading on to, to how the paper starts getting into it. If you've got something where things are being, you know, are they just flat wrong? You know, that's not what the presumption is saying, or is it actually, you know, there are ways in which you could read the presumption as in some way saying, you know, stop thinking or don't yeah. think almost. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think we we all traced it to having these roots in the phrasing itself of the presumption in all of these jurisdictions where you have sort of this, this exclusive disjunction, this logical problem that Scott was just gesturing at where you either have this assumption, this active assumption that the person has capacity or you've already established that they lack it. And so it's one or the other, they both can't be true and they both can't be false. But that's sort of troubling because of course, and, and confusing, right? Because of course there's this necessary state where in fact both would be false, right? Where you no longer are assuming that the person has capacity, but we also have yet to establish that they lack it. Um, we're in this state where we don't know yet, right? And that's why we're asking the question. Um, and it seems as though the the MCA and all of the different jurisdictions that that sort of word it this way um, are used, you know, are sort of, they are you know, getting you into this situation, right, where, where basically, you know, you're, sorry, I'm getting a bit, you know, sort of jumbled in how to describe this. But basically, if you don't conduct an assessment, you don't have a reason to, is sort of this, yeah. this weird logical implication of that. So then you get these people who are, who are avoiding, you know, conducting an evaluation, and that seems harmful, it's prone to abuse, it leaves people in bad situations. But, but it's also kind of not without basis in the way the laws are written. Um, so this, this troubling situation. So how can we, because I'm never a great fan of just pointing out problems, um, kind of help us think through from a kind of, from your perspective and, uh, and the way the paper tries to think, through, well, how, how do we get ourselves out of that? You know, are we trapped in this kind of endless logic loop? Or is there some way that we can have fidelity to the idea of a, of a presumption, but not leading us into this kind of slightly dangerous terrain. Mm -hmm. No, there's definitely a solution. Um, and we think that one way of seeing this is just seeing um, sort of cases where it's used properly, right? Where people are, people are sort of seem to be implicitly making use of this concept that we call um, sort of suspension of the presumption, right? Where you have this default position initially that an individual has capacity, but maybe if you, you sort of there are these concerns about their decision making and you may sort of suspend the presumption in order to conduct an evaluation. And while you conduct the evaluation, you know, you're gathering your evidence, you're speaking to the person. And ultimately, you have either a finding of capacity where you sort of restore the presumption is, is the language that we're using, or you've rebutted it and you say that the person lacks capacity to make the decision at hand. 
Yeah. But we see I mean, this, yeah. Sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, but we really see the suspension as sort of the, the solution to the problem. And many people already are implicitly making use of that sort of concept. That's that's part of our claim. Scott, I don't know whether you had anything. That was really, really clear. Thank you, Isabel. Scott, I don't know whether you had anything you wanted to add from your perspective on that, you know, this this suspension business. Yeah, I, I think that this difficulty with presumption of capacity, the way it's written in MCA and many other laws, is reflective of what I think is a fairly general problem in the literature and uh, discourse about decision-making capacity, which is the following. There is a great reluctance to refrain from moralizing <laughs> about the concept Um that is necessary when there are states of uncertainty about a person's decision-making capacity. Yeah. There's a sense in which people always want to say, you either respect the person or not respect the person. So if you actually start putting aside a presumption, suspend it, then somehow that's taken as you're kind of being paternalistic. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, it depends on how you define paternalism, but there is a kind of unthinking, in my view, and I'm. Uh, this is based on having re systematically reviewed the literature on the related area, that there is a tendency to um, not focus on the uncertainty that exists when you're assessing decision-making capacity, and that there is a suspension of presumption. That's okay. That's not being paternalistic, right? But that's people fear that. People fear being called a paternalist. So yeah. I think that's what motivated this kind of very bold statement about presumption in the law, uh, ignoring the logical problems in it. Yeah. I mean, another way of framing it, well, I'd be interested in your, your respective takes on that. Another way of framing it is it, it's, it's, a bit about, it's a bit similar to these interpretation of um, autonomy you know does autonomy mean taking the person's first answer or does autonomy mean in circumstances where you might be concerned as to whether that person actually has the ability to make that decision it means just digging into it and you you're not necessarily attacking the person's autonomy by doing that extra legwork of thinking right yeah. yeah yeah you know if you there's a famous series of books by Joel Feinberg, a distinguished um, law uh, theorist who uses the term soft paternalism to refer to the whole idea of, you know, it's okay to assess somebody's capacity because what you really want to avoid is what you might call hard paternalism, which is knowingly overriding a person's competent choice for their own sake. We all agree that that's the uniform standard in most jurisdictions now. But that doesn't mean it's kind of similarly morally problematic to say, well, you know, this person may not be making a competent decision, so we have to examine it. So anyway, I think yeah. it's related to that. That all is related to this issue, not keeping yeah. that clear. I mean, Isabel, I can hear... I can sort of almost hear people already saying, isn't this paper just clever people telling people, you know, telling people to effectively ignore the presumption of capacity and going around to find more people to lack capacity? 
And I'm sort of interested in, you know, is that the case or is it trying to, you know, are, are, are we, can we, can we defend ourselves against that charge? <laughs> I think definitely not. Um, I think a big part of this is that it's motivated by concerns about real harm happening to people um, when you misinterpret the presumptions. So, you know, for example, there's this case in Romford in 2022 um, where numerous family members were raising concerns about this woman's mental capacity. And um, ultimately, this went to court because it was this horrible situation where actually her house burned down and she died in this fire because she was unable to look after herself. Um, but the presumption had been used in exactly this mistaken way we've been talking about, you know, to avoid taking responsibility for her care, right? Um, they said basically exactly this, this sort of catch-22 situation where in the absence of a capacity evaluation, she has to be assumed to have capacity. So you have this situation where a person is is abandoned, essentially, to, to the presumption of their capacity. Um, so I think there's you know, it's it's not just a it's not just a clever trick, and it's definitely not motivated to call more people lacking as lacking capacity. It's actually more motivated by, yeah, this concern that there are people who lack capacity who are unable to look after themselves, and we really need to be concerned about harm to those individuals. And the presumption certainly should not be used. It serves nobody's autonomy, you know, to abandon those people to the assumption that they're that they have capacity. Yeah. I mean, one one sort of thing that the paper draws out, and I just would really love your take on it, Isabel, is, is if we start doing this, then a huge amount of weight starts getting put on, well, what's the basis upon which we might be suspending? You know, what is what is it that says, you know, we've just been working with this person or we've just encountered this person. What's the kind of, you know, legitimate concern? What's, the, you know, what what is it? So I'd just be interested in your take on and then maybe Scott's comments afterwards on, you know, well, you know, what's the threshold? Mm -hmm. Some of no, the things really you'd be bothered point. about. Yeah, I think so. What our analysis does that's a little bit different is it seems like in most of the literature on this, people are very focused on the stakes of evaluation itself and very focused on, you know, how do you reach a determination of having capacity or lacking it, very focused on what happens within the evaluation. But of course, in our analysis, now there's a lot more weight being put on the presumption. What gets an, you know, what gets mm. an evaluation started, right? So there's a lot more on that question. Um, and so you're right that there's this big question then of what, you know, what is going to allow for this suspension. Um, and we advocate for sort of a, a risk sensitive trigger here, right? Where you take into account, um, you know, both how risky the situation is that this person is faced with and the decision that they have to make. And then also looking at their, you know, their abilities, what degree of sort of um, decisional impairment are we suspecting, you know, might be going on here. Um, and of course it's very difficult to articulate, you know, specifically what yeah. degree and it's gonna it's gonna vary on a case-by-case -case basis i don't know if scott wants to come in on this as well well <clears throat> i agree with that um and only maybe i'll i could phrase it slightly different in this sense that um when we talk about suspension of presumption it's more of an epistemological move not so much a moral statement. So what it's saying is, well, we're not sure, right? And 
Therefore, we need to do an evaluation. Now, we are, as Isabel very well put it, we're saying that epistemic move should be informed by the uh, risk-benefit evaluation of the situation. So I think, uh, and we do this all the time. I mean, this is the standard way we think about things in uh, medicine and in public policies and so forth. Yeah. And I mean, sort of framing it back, there was, I mean, one of the things I find very interesting, I have found interesting is there is a good case where the judge is going to recognise, you know, this idea of, it's called Royal Bank of Scotland and AB, I think, and there the judges are kind of recognised, the judge recognises, you know, there's a point at which relying on a presumption of capacity is just frankly, I mean, it's not just silly, it's actively problematic, I mean, it's actively harmful. And, and the phrase which is then used, it doesn't appear in the Mental Capacity Act, but it's, you know, sort of a, a legitimate reason to doubt. And I think that's the kind of, and as is, I couldn't agree more with you as well, I don't, you know, it, it's not like you could sort of set out a list of factors or a checklist or a thing, but it's that that kind of the idea of a legitimate reason and that legitimacy, in, at least to me, is coming from you know, the combination of, you know, what you know about the person, what you know about the risks, what you know about the circumstance. And it's almost the sort of flipping it round. If you didn't interrogate this, you know, what would you be your reason? And if you couldn't give a coherent reason that you didn't interrogate, then, you know, it's that kind of, but as you say, it's how, how one reduces, how, how one says that in a way which doesn't get down to, you know, people having checklists. Yeah. I mean, do you think if you had a free run at it and you were suddenly a lawmaker, you know, you suddenly stepped out of the NIH, both of you, and went, right, well, let's do some lawmaking here. You know, how would you write this? Because we just have to spend, you know, the best part of 15 minutes explaining when it says presumption of capacity, it doesn't mean what some people might think it means. You know, what do you think? Either of you. I think, <laughs> I think writing... Uh, well, the way I'm going to say it is going to be many more words than I think it would need to be in the law. But for me, I think the key point is, you know, for all of the reasons that we have the presumption in the first place, right, respect for autonomy, you do need to have some sort of default position that when you meet a person, you have this assumption that they have capacity, right? So it needs yep. to first, the law needs to still serve that purpose of establishing that default position. But then it does need to, I think, make clear that when this legitimate reason to doubt that that's the case arises, you do need to put that presumption aside and evaluate and then reach a determination. Um, and I'm not sure how to word that more succinctly, <laughs> um, but I think it's yeah. important to do so. Yeah. 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 I mean, the first rule of lawmaking is the people who are trying to have the ideas about how to draft the law shouldn't draft it because drafting law is a technical skill and it's the idea is you, you sort of set the policy but i'm just really interested to get your sense of you know what you think the policy would be i don't know scott have you got a take on yeah i think i, I would i would say two things one is that at minimum they should eliminate the what we call the exclusive distinction um, you know, when you have that or operator in a statement, in a, in a claim, in a proposition, there, you know, philosophers and linguists talk about different ways of interpreting it. The way it's phrased and it's used, it could be used is really problematic. So I would just get rid of one part and just simply say, 
a person must be assumed or presumed to have capacity unless there are legitimate downs reasons to doubt this to initiate an evaluation, period. That would just sort of leave it open as to how, and that's consistent with how we operate. The other thing I think is a really interesting thing, and this is a meta point, is that I have no doubt that when they wrote this law, it was very well intended and everybody agreed that it would couldn't be abused. But what we can't anticipate is that law just sits there after you write it. Yeah. But people's incentives change and systems incentives change or unanticipated situations arise. So what you witness, certainly in England and Wales and the law, com uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, not the law commission, but the House of Lords Select Committee saw <laughs> was that when uh, people who are responsible for devoting significant resources to the vulnerable saw a logical way of avoiding it, it became a tremendous incentive to interpret the law in a perfectly logical way, but which in the spirit of the law, of course, no one had anticipated that you would do it that way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a really, I mean, that's a very valid, very valid and very important point. And I think it's one of those things, I, whenever I teach law, I always make the point of emphasizing the, the 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 layers which sit between the letter of the law and the individual interaction between, say, the clinician and the person. And you have to think through all of those layers which might be pushing people to act in different ways. And I have to say, one of the things which I was really pleased that you wanted to kind of work on this paper and, and work it up is one of the things I find really challenging is because it sounds like people are doing the ethically good thing by relying on the presumption of capacity. It's giving, so in some situations, it's giving genuinely well-meaning people, it is leading genuinely well-meaning people down a garden path of thinking we can't think about it. But it's also giving cover to people who are resource stretched or don't like the person or, you know, all sorts of things we'd actually be very ethically uncomfortable about. What feels like a get out, of, not just a get out of jail free card, but I am doing the right thing card. And I think that's one of the things which certainly kind of motivated me. Um, I don't know whether those those are thought. I mean, I suspect they may be thoughts which resonate with you. But Isabel, I don't know whether you you had any thoughts there. Yeah, I know exactly. And I think this is something that we yeah we all talked about again towards the end of our paper as well is like you know if not you know that there is this this yeah you could have good well-intentioned people getting confused right and that's that's a big issue so at the very least if we're not going to sort of talk about how we can reword this eliminate this exclusive disjunction issue you know there does need to be some clearer guidance on how people should use the presumption so we don't have well-intentioned people you know just thinking that, yeah, exactly, thinking they can't raise the question when there's reason to. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Oh, well, I normally try and keep these to about 20 minutes and we've, we've kind of hit 20 minutes. Um, I would love to keep talking because one of the things I find so interesting is, well, A, the, the kind of comparative stuff for, with people from different disciplines, but also literally the cross-cultural, you know, the cross-American cultural, uh, English uh, legal cultural matters, which we could spend more time on. But I think for now, I'm going to draw strumps. Thank you very much indeed, Isabel. Thank you very much indeed, Scott. And I'll put the link to the paper at the bottom of the page associated with this chat. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you, Alex. This was so much fun.